I'm Dennis Metzler, and welcome to The Charge. Today, we're taking a look at the thought of Stanley Hauerwas and his thought relating to peace and peacemaking. We have with us here Dr. Nathan Hostler, who is the director of the Church of the Brethren's Office of Public Witness, which is based in Washington, D.C. He's got his Ph.D. in theological studies from the University of the Western Cape in South Africa. So, uh, Nathan, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. So do you prefer Nate or Nathan? I usually write Nathan. Most people call me Nate, so whatever you feel inclined towards. All right. Uh, so um, if you could start with just um, some of your own background, uh, orientation in terms of theology, church tradition, give people a chance to know where you're coming from. Sure, yeah. Again, Nate Hustler, I, as noted, work for the— uh, we actually changed our name perhaps since what you have written, Office of Peacebuilding and Policy, the Washington office in, in Washington, D.C., um, I've worked now in this context for 10 years, uh, looking at how we engage um, directly with governmental offices and agencies, as well as other faith-based and secular organizations across the political and ideological spectrum on issues of concern for the Church of the Brethren. I'm also a pastor at the Washington City Church of the Brethren, um, based here in Washington, D.C., on Capitol Hill, and um, have been in that role for about the same amount of time. I grew up in the Church of the Brethren uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, a church that um, had historically been a, a church of the brethren, and I, my my parents and grandparents lived there, and I, I felt a call to ministry while working with Eastern Mennonite Mission in um, both Baltimore and then um, Germany, and went and studied uh, biblical studies at Moody Bible Institute, an evangelical school. And I say in that context, I, I realized that um, while I fit in some ways, I also realized that I uh, was in fact church of the brethren, and that there were some differences in how churches. Um, and Christians think about things that we have much in common. Of course, there are things where we, uh, in, in good faith, disagree and uh, can work to discuss and figure out how we work together. Um, after that, in grad school at a Catholic institution studying international relations, went and worked with the Church of the Brethren in Northeast Nigeria uh, for about two years of the first part of the Boko Haram crisis. And so in that context, both having studied um, peace building in grad school and uh, the context of international relations, and then being put into a context that had uh, literally four weeks before been attacked by Boko Haram, um, not that exact, not the exact exact place, but the region, their largest church having been destroyed uh, a few hours from where I was at, um, was invited to, uh, within a week of arriving, start teaching at their seminary, their main uh, ministry training school, uh, and I invited a, a very robust conversation and engagement on how we think about um, following Jesus uh, peacefully. Um, and in ways that make for peace in very difficult context. Uh, and that has continued to shape how we think about um, our call to peacemaking, our call to nonviolence and following Jesus in contexts that are uh, often you know, both risky and also um, challenge how we think about it on a regular basis. All right. And I just realized I totally forgot to introduce your book. I mean, this whole talk is re revolving around your book. So it is Hauerwas, The Peacemaker, Peacebuilding, Race, and Foreign Policy. So um, follow the link below. That you, the book is available. So uh, next then, um, how about a little background on Hauerwas himself? So, I, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll do a slight pivot on that question. I, I think I felt called to Hauerwas, or not called to him, called to or uh, inclined to engage in this work. Um, having appreciated his work coming out of Moody Bible Institute, where I, as noted, uh, realized that there were differing ways to think about uh, being a Christian and following Jesus. 
and in 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 real reality being a very difficult spot being uncertain kind of where i fit how i thought what i thought and one thing that i i found uh i think i connected with haros on was his both commitment to peacemaking or peaceableness um as we'll maybe discuss later he doesn't talk a whole lot about peacemaking explicitly but a whole lot about war and nonviolence and peacefulness uh and so both that strong uh commitment rooted in a, a very robust uh understanding of Jesus but also in a, a sense of uh, I think we had a some perhaps somewhat similar trajectories in in how we developed theologically and so while he uh while he had humility and or has humility and uh maybe allows uncertainty also is able to I think reclaim a, a confidence of speaking in a way that uh when done well doesn't seek to overwhelm or dominate but also doesn't shy away and um maybe perpetually qualify in a way that uh it doesn't have a sort of a robust uh kind of a public presence um of course many people read his work as uh, aggressive or you know somewhat combative uh and I think you know one can discuss whether or not he overdoes that or is you know perhaps a little bit strong that way but i but i i see this out of a an effort to speak truthfully and faithfully and also um with a degree of confidence though of course having substantial humility in how it is i mean his background is he grew up uh, evangelical methodist i grew up as i alluded to earlier church of the brother that was on the evangelical end of of the theological spectrum he then went off to study um theology at Yale and kind of came into um perhaps some confrontation with uh, other ways of of thinking about theology and so came out of this um not fully where he was but also perhaps not fully where he felt um some of his colleagues or uh, professors were and so i think that that in some ways resonated with my own journey uh and also commitments and uh, was kind of understanding myself within the church and within within the world. Okay, and then he went on to teach where Right, yeah. So he he, he taught in a few places um previous and then most of his career was spent at Duke Divinity School is where he retired from. And so he uh theologically uh, identifies as a high church Mennonite and so he was affected affected substantially by John Howard Yoder's uh, Mennonite theology as well as high church traditions and uh ecclesial life and so he's lived in in some version of episcopal or methodist um congregational settings as as far as i can gather from his uh his writing all right then so uh how about you give us a definition um of these basic terms so i'll give you 3 and then i'll give you the other 3 so peace peacemaking and peace building all right. So as with all these things, these are ex- discussed at great length um, and also in various ways in various academic literatures. Uh, you know, th- my work is in theological ethics, but most of my kind of professional work is in um, the D.C. policy space and non-government organization space. And so we think of peace uh, very basically and theologically within both a theological tradition and scriptural tradition tradition I tend to root this in the vision of the Hebrew scriptures of shalom so well-being that encompasses all aspects of life and so it's not just the absence of conflict or the absence of violence but the presence of well-being 
both good relationships between uh, individuals within communities and also with the the rest of the created order, the non-human right. order environment. Um, and also um, you know, thinking theologically with, with God, uh, we see this you know, playing out in scriptures in a range of way from reconciliation with God through Jesus being given a uh, ministry of reconciliation. So I, when I think of peace, think of this in very um, expansive notion that um, ties with the interconnectedness and relationality and well-being. And then uh, well, peacemaking? Peace, sorry? Peacemaking. 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 I see as the active pursuit of this. And so this tends to, in practice, relate to uh, moments of conflict or violence. Um, again, so it can be fairly expansive, which I think peacebuilding also gets at. So peacebuilding, I would tend to see within the, the policy or the secular academic space, um, the, the book has peace building on the in the title, um, essentially indicating how I'm interacting theologically with this broader area of work. Peace building in that context and in, in uh, the organizational space, so for example, Alliance for Peace Building tends to be aimed towards context of violence or instability or conflict. It, it pays attention to the broader causation. So poverty, governance, uh, you know, all these sorts of things, human rights violations but it tends to be oriented towards um, uh, sites of conflict or violence. Okay, and then the other three, nonviolence, pacifism, and non-resistance. So when nonviolence is talked about, we often think of active nonviolence. And so, for example, perhaps systems change for justice um, using nonviolence tactics. So Martin Luther King Jr., Gandhi, so you're actively working to change systems with an active commitment to uh, sometimes theologically or ideologically committed to nonviolence, sometimes practically. So, for example, if you do this in certain contexts and the government uh, crushes the movement, then this actually gains political strength, even though there's not necessarily a, a strict commitment to nonviolence. Usually there is, or at least a commitment to uh, generally functioning in a nonviolent way. Um, pacifism, I would see as a more uh, principled, so either theological, ethical, or philosophical commitment to not participating in violence or systems of violence. So think of the military industrial complex, perhaps defense industries, uh, you know, on a sort of narrower sense, not partic participating directly in armed conflict. Um, this, as I related to earlier in the conversation around working in Northeast Nigeria, is a very active uh, conversation when people's homes were you know, literally being broken into by people who armed uh, with the intent of killing them. Um, you know, this this all of a sudden becomes a very real conversation of how do you do you defend yourself? How do you defend yourself? What are mm. actions you can do in that context? And then um, uh, you say non-participation, non-resistance, non-resistance, non-resistance. Would we we traditionally actually have the church of brother would have typically been, and so less traditionally in terms of like originally two hundred years ago. Um, less uh, developed thinking around active peacemaking or nonviolent, active nonviolence, and more of we will not participate. So it it, it tends to be towards a, a withdrawing and pulling back from active participating or support uh, in primarily military or uh, occupations that, or the, the facets of occupations that have violent potential. So there's some discussion, like, for example, police are armed. Uh, but they're armed and function differently than the military. So does a police officer who is armed, can you do that if you're committed to um, you know, non-participation? You know, that was a, a fairly active conversation for some time and remains to be in, in many contexts. 
But non-resistance as a term is not hasn't been used much for years now, right? Yeah, not a, not a whole lot. You you tend to see like uh, in in certain anti-war work, um, you'd see that somewhat. But yeah, it's it's it say it's much less used at this point. All right then. So um, as you see it, what is the biblical foundation for peace and peacemaking? So the. You know, I, I speak at this point as an individual as well as an you know, official representative of the Church of the Brethren, so I kind of float between those two spaces. But I, I think we're, we're pretty much on the same page, but I'm speaking as an individual, but also articulating a Church of the Brethren view. Uh, the Church of the Brethren has uh, traditionally prioritized the life and teaching of Jesus and we in our life together. And so while we understand the entire uh, scripture as our authoritative text, we have tended to focus on the New Testament with a tendency towards the gospel, with a tendency towards the Sermon on the Mount. So I'll start with that. And so hmm. in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, we see blessed are the peacemakers, so they'll be called the children of God. You know, this this seems to tie, it's not just an sort of active technical vocation of a few people who are doing this professionally, but it's part of all of our, and it's linked specifically to the character of God. Later on in the Sermon on the Mount, we see this call to non-retaliation uh, if an enemy does something to you or forces you to do something and it bases his rationale on because your father in heaven uh, sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous so it ties to uh, our familial connection to god god's character being one that cares for all and this relating to not retaliating against enemies and caring for all uh, this then, you know, expands in many ways. So, for example, Matthew 18, and, uh, and this is one one of the places where Howard Ross talks about peacemaking explicitly. And we see uh, the call to if someone sins against you to go to them and confront them. There's sort of not not quite a strategy, but a bit of a, a bit of a strategy laid out. So you go to them if they don't, you know, kind of repent and kind of reconcile. Then you um, bring others, and there's a you know a bit of a community process for both reconciliation, but also for addressing wrongdoing. So that, that's the, the you know internal community aspect of it. Then in other places, for example, in 2 Corinthians and 5 and Romans 5, we see this framing of being reconciled to God through Jesus and be giving a ministry of reconciliation, which both then is a reconciliation between people and a reconciliation to, um, to God. And then, of course, when we read the, the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, we see many accounts of, and this is, again, a very active discussion, many accounts of of violence and and a number of them seem to be uh portrayed or con- uh described as being attributed to god or being based on god's command and this of course uh it's important for us not to shy away from this but uh, we again read this through the lens of jesus and seeing a very clear call to peacemaking and so however we uh understand ourselves in relation to this we understand that god calls us to this act there's also a book the cross, I won't run over my bookshelf, called Neglected Voices by a Church of Brethren pastor who looks at uh, voices within the Hebrew scriptures that actively uh, talk about peace. So, for example, I referenced earlier Shalom, this understanding of wellness and wholeness in God's creation. We see calls for justice, walking just, walking in justice um, and humbly with our God and in relation to the people. We see calls for caring for others. And so all these, within my own thinking, within the Church of the Brethren, are are knit together in this both spiritual, ethical, and practical way of living in community, both tied to service for others, um, worship of God, and care for all, and working then actively for peace. Um, peace. Uh, so, for example, I, I might just 
spend our whole time talking about one or two uh, questions, but I'll, I have one example. So right before this call, I got an email from a colleague about a, an article based on people displaced IDPs in Nigeria and Northeast Nigeria about the, the long-term effects of having people not be able to go back to their homes for 10 years. And what does that mean for say the food supply chains when people are trying to now farm in a land that was not in a country, but in a different region, how does that shape food prices and land prices? And what does that mean for community conflict? And so when we think of, you know, peacemaking, we see um, these things are necessarily in, in many cases, maybe all cases somehow connected to for the well being of all. And so in our minds, and our how we attempt to practice is service and care for others in case of say hunger, or agricultural development is not different from you know, work for racial justice or peacemaking, though there are, of course, you know, differing contexts in many cases and differing, to some degree, differing skill sets. All right. So from what you read in the scriptures, do you understand um, that there's an absolute prohibition against killing? I feel like I'm going to say that. That is a, a complicated question. That's how I read it. I recognize this is a a a minority position within Christianity and historically. Um, so when I read it that way, though, I don't, that doesn't mean I necessarily think myself at odds with all Christians who I work with. You know, most Christians I work with aren't, aren't pacifists and we disagree on say the absolute prohibition of war or participation in war. I work very, very closely with, you know, basically every, every type of Christian on almost every type of topic. And so I can appreciate, um, many people's efforts to reduce harm and reduce suffering and right. a general attempt to reduce violence. Um, so you can still be an active fellowship with somebody, even though I can, I can still you still active, hold this view. Yeah, I can still be an active fellowship. I can still work actively. You know, Howard Ross, one thing that I, I think his work is relevant for peacemaking is that he challenges our assumptions of, for example, our relationship to the nation state. And so, for example, the church building I'm in presently is on Capitol Hill. And I've ever since I've been in this, like literally five blocks from the Capitol building. And ever since I've been here um, now for 10 years, I've said, I'm, I'm not I'm not quite clear. If, I'm not quite sure if that meant we bought into the system of power and presence or if that meant we were here as an active uh, you know, resistance to um, you know, to powers of violence in our stained glass, which is unusual for trips to brother and have stained glass. We have blessed are the peacemakers. And so this was clearly part of our thinking. So I think it's probably, we probably live somewhere between this. Um, but Howard invites us to, you know, question our assumptions of what, you know, you know, is war necessary? You know, how much does this frame our very understanding of life? You know, he calls war our liturgy, our, you know, what brings us together as a nation. Um, he also uh, pushes us to think about how this, our Christian identity then has us as a counter politics, though we, he regularly says we, we still should engage in, you know, all sorts of efforts to make the world less violent. He says, for example, uh, in Christ war is abolished. And by this, he means that it is, it has happened already, which still invites us to participate in its kind of living it out. So there's a, a interesting tension there is, it's not that that gives us space to sit back and you know kind of assume the work is done. On the other hand, it does it does mean that the work is not only ours. Um, it's not just my my strategy or my you know 
advocacy skills or my network. But I think where this also then invites us, you know, this is very, very relevant in DC, but also throughout the, throughout the US, the, the military industrial complex, so the, the set of industrial practices and companies that are, are set to supply our military endeavors are, you know, intentionally everywhere. They're in you know, every, if not virtually all, if not all congressional districts. You know, this is very intentional because people will then have an economic uh, incentive to stay mm-hmm. in, uh, stay, have a stay more. And you see this as soon as, as soon as Ukraine happens. Uh, you know, I, I flew down to uh, North Carolina for a National Council of Churches meeting, and I was almost on the same flight, but he didn't invite me on his plane. Biden landed at the same time, and he was going to, to praise the, the local uh, weapons manufacturer to say, look, you're doing such a great job. We really need to send a lot of weapons. You know, thanks for mm-hmm. ramping up your efforts. I mean, they're they're clearly making money on this, so it's not as though, uh, you know, it's not a, it's not an act of benevolence. Uh, it's a it's a money making opportunity. And so, when we see this, when we when you see how closely all of our lives are tied into the economic uh, incentives towards war, it I think how Ross and our own discernment invites us to see how, even unintentionally, how much we're embedded in systems of violence, and how do okay. we how do we work in relation to that. Okay, so you identify three theological themes in Harawas. So let's start with his uh, his Christocentrism. How does he see Jesus? I, th- I was I was just looking back through. So I wrote this a little while ago. I was looking back through, and I, I, what I note is that it, you know he he very intentionally um, has everything woven together so that that I identify specific themes within within his work. I, I would imagine he doesn't particularly like. You know, I see his his Christocentrism. Uh, which is a word he does, I don't believe he uses anywhere, um, as related kind of similarly to how the Church of the Brethren has often uh, seen things. So he sees Jesus and Jesus shaping and call in our lives as core and core to the identity of the Church. And so it's it's very practical. So for the Church of the Brethren, for example, our tagline, which is, we don't have a creed, but the tagline is not a creed, but it is how we you know roughly define ourselves for a long time, has been continuing the work of Jesus peacefully, simply together. So you see main themes here of we're participating in. So how Ross has this idea of the as Christians, as individuals, we join in the church, which is joining into a larger narrative, which then shapes and overtakes our narrative. And this is a narrative of Israel and Jesus, uh, this the narrative of God working for reconciliation. And so we join in this narrative and then are shaped by this narrative through uh, formation. He doesn't often use the language of discipleship, but the church of the brother, we've typically said discipleship, this notion that we're were shaped. His his language is typically around virtue. Earlier in his career, it's around character. But the, the notion that we're shaped and our theology is not separate from our ethics, uh, our worship is not separate from how we live in the world. Um, so that that's how I read him, and and would define him as Christocentric, as as a as a common theme for how he frames the work of the church and the life of the church and ours as as Christians within that. And so his theology and ethics are very much grounded in the church. So um, what is uh, noteworthy about his ecclesiology? So for one thing, he, he regularly says, which is hard to articulate in a way that he probably would like. I, he, he often says the and between theology and ethics is a problem. So there's no theology and ethics. He doesn't, he's, on multiple occasions, said he doesn't really like being called a Christian ethicist or theological ethicist. He's a theologian, and that necessarily has ethical um, components. So his his ecclesiology. I mean, all, all of his work is fairly 
probably many people say very informal. And so it's, you know, he's not systematic. He's not kind of breaking down all the pieces uh, into kind of discrete, discrete parts, but he, his ecclesiology is the church, our, our primary life and identity is through the church. The church itself is political in that it's public, it's out. It's not just for our personal betterment or for, um, you know, me and Jesus or kind of us for a sort of a, a separate religious is not separate from kind of our, the rest of our life. There's no rest. It is, it is the thing. And so in this way, the church is, uh, one would say, fairly or very organic. It's a place where we live and are shaped, where we submit ourselves, uh, where we're also empowered to to follow Jesus, um, which again is a, a, a number of not very formal terms, but is how, how he often discusses and describes the church. All right, then. And uh, as far as his uh, stand on violence, how, how would he articulate that? And what's his rationale behind that? So I would say it's similar, but articulated somewhat differently than how I talked about peacemaking or nonviolence. So in you know, as we join in the story of Jesus and the church uh, and God, we see that through the cross, Christ has abolished, he says, abolished war, abolished violence. And so in this, Christ has done away with and has undone all of the um, identities that would usually form us. In this case, usually, and how Ross is thinking, usually the nation state or identities that would divide us. So for example, he says, uh, he gets accused of being a sectarian. He says the nation state is, is actually the sectarian. The only the nation state's asking me to go, you know, kill on its behalf and approve of this. Uh, so Christ, having taken on and overcome this violence through the resurrection, as well as um, forgiveness, even in the face of this violence against him, this abolishes and undoes um, undoes the violence that we often feel uh, shapes our lives. And then because of that, because this, there's not a difference between theology and ethics, then we, when we live this out, it invites us into active peacemaking, which he says uh, many people, I'm not sure if this is actually true, he says many people, you know, say they want peace, but don't actually want peace because peace sounds boring to them. It sounds like nothing's happening. But peace actually, an active peace actually invites us into a, uh, you know, often into places of conflict, often into struggles for justice. Of course, he problematizes the language of justice, so he probably wouldn't say advice is into places of struggling for justice, but he 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 does does allow that. He just often challenges how we frame those frame those categories. Right. While you mentioned that, he um yeah, he's uh, notorious for that, for what he says about justice. Can, can you sum up his thought on that? So there's a bit of a, a development in his thought over the years. I've not other I've not seen other people comment on that, but as I spent a lot of time with his work, my impression is that in the kind of the end of the Cold War era, which you know many people framed as the, the triumph of capitalism or the triumphs of the West or liberal democracy, um, this is when he state he has the strongest statements around justice. So it's like late '80s, early '90s, early to mid '90s. And he starts gradually doesn't fully never quite like fully, you know recants this but he but that's where he's like the strongest what's interesting is that he doesn't talk about the context who he's talking to my impression is that he's he's talking to people who he sees as kind of having bought into a a political theory of justice that's detached or somehow separate or um 
superior or pri- has priority to theological reflection and, hmm, and right. the gospel and the church. And so I see this as a, a rhetorical, maybe not overstatement, but a rhetorical push to, to attempt to get Christians specifically to articulate the theological, like a, a more substantial theology of justice, for example. And so, you know, he says, he, for example, challenges folks who you know, talk about justice to say, you know, what what do you mean by justice? We When we say justice, we often assume we know what we mean. And so if I say to you, you know, I talk to a colleague and say, you know, we're here for justice. We assume that it means if I say to someone else, they say, we're here for justice. Well, yeah, that's, it's not, we don't, it, nothing, but especially these sorts of terms that have a whole background to them, we don't necessarily mean exactly the same things. And so part of his push is to get us to, articulate and make a more theologically robust case for, I think, things that are fairly, that often look or could look like justice. So, for example, he says Jesus is the justice of God, or Jesus is, you know, or the church, the work of the church is our social ethic. And by this, he means we're out in the world doing things in the way of Jesus, which puts us into struggles for justice, caring for the poor. But this isn't a sort of external political category that then gets, you know, kind of laid over top of Jesus and Jesus used to justify this. I think where I'm, I'm not, I can appreciate the sentiment um, where, where I would challenge him is I, 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 well, I won't get into that just yet, but, but I, but I, I think so, for example, I, I work with someone one time who said, we were talking about creation care or caring for the environment. And they said, well, I don't really, you know, I don't do this work of environmental justice because of my faith. But they could see how it related to theology. So I could take that as faith rally, but that person also had grown up in a church, specifically a church of the brethren. And so I'd grown up in a, a sort of environment of caring for the world, being part of our spiritual journey. And so I don't, I'm not sure if you could say that even if that person didn't articulate it as in a theologically substantial way, or even necessarily realize it was connected to broader sort of theological formation, it doesn't mean it wasn't somehow related to theological formation it just means perhaps the need to work to have a more robust theological articulation and also right. that they could be challenged by that and so it's not it's not that that person's view was perfect and there's no challenging of it but it's it, you, i don't think i mean i think in some ways Howard is being a bit kind of having these sort of separate silos that he tries to break down when he says you know th- there shouldn't be an and between theology and ethics i, I think in some ways putting an and in there that is I'm not sure if you can justify, at least not kind of uniformly. All right, then. And to get more to the heart of it, then, what does he, how does he understand peace and peacemaking? So I alluded to this a little bit. Um, and so much of his, there's relatively few places where he talks specifically about peacemaking. Um, in the book, I, I give some um, more focused look at taking time for peace. Um, what is it? Taking time, I forget the exact subtitle of the chapter, but it's it, he looks at this Matthew 18. It says something like, "Peacemaking is a virtue of the church, uh, and it's a virtue of Christians. So it's part of our very identity and who we are. And because of this, we're willing to engage in conflict for the good of peace. It's not just a avoidance of conflict or an assumption that if there's no active conflict, we're in peace, but we kind of it's an active engagement. Then it ties. You know, this relates very much to this." Uh, challenging notions around war and the nation state. In the book, I also I, I do some 
it's not super detailed analysis, but I look at um, a few of his works on at a whole. So, uh, for example, War and the American Difference, and uh, look at this as a function of, I, I say the book itself is a witness against war, challenging our notions of war, and as such, it is a form of peacemaking. It's not all there is peacemaking, but challenging assumptions in the, as for th theologian whose primary work is in words and writing and speaking this is a form of peacemaking um and so you know, he frames it he, he doesn't again does he doesn't like the end so it's it's the ecclesiology the work of the church and the life of the church is not different from peacemaking which is not different from worship and so when we worship god rightly this is a function of reconciliation and to worship well we need to be in reconciled with one another and the church then cannot be living and this is a bit of my word, but, you know, uh, cannot be living in a uh, improper or domineering way in the in the world. And so when you think of, uh, you know, present discussions around anti-racism or undoing racism, you know, this then invites me to challenge my existence as a white person. How do I think about my existence in relation to racial injustice presently and historically in the U.S.? How do I work to right those wrongs to make systems and community relationships that are better now so characterized by justice and so this this is the work of worship as well as the work of the church as well as a personal work as well as necessarily community work and is how he embeds that okay then and as far as uh, forming believers what some of us might call discipleship spiritual formation he talks about virtue, character, narrative, and liturgy. So how does that function in the life of the church and in the vocation of peacemaking? So this actually goes to um, kind of how I relate him into the work uh, in, of John Paul Lederach and the moral imagination, which is more properly a peace building, not quite theory, but a, you know, work more narrowly on peace building rather than theology. Um, so, the character and virtue are formed by uh, the life of the church, so liturgies, practices. By doing these peaceable actions together, we then are formed through practice, not unlike or very similar to apprenticeship. And so you learn to be, a, I grew up doing carpentry with my dad. I learned to do carpentry by, you know, hammering. My, my first carpentry project that I have is a little piece of wood that says, in like probably five-year-old scrawl, Nathan's coat rack, and it's like three nails hammered into it. So I learned how to hammer, and uh, hammer even now that I don't work as a carpenter and haven't for you know, 15 years. It feels very natural to hammer because I grew up practicing and, you know, smashing my fingers and whatnot. And so the liturgy, which forms us in both the language and speech of the church and right worship in Hauerwas's, um uh, rendition then forms us into people who can work peaceably in the world. So for the Church of the Brethren, for example, we we have uh, our primary, traditionally and mostly presently, our primary communion is through what we call the Love Feast, which is a, a bit of a reenactment of the Last Supper and where we you know actually physically wash feet. And so there's been some discussion or at least reference over the years uh maybe not you know always super detailed but the idea that by practicing washing feet we learn what it means to serve or we begin to learn what it means to serve and then by going out and serving our community we're challenged um by this so the call to, in my case the call to ministry it was with easter mennonite mission in baltimore and i was very having grown up in a rural predominantly white community i was put face-to-face -face with historic and present racial injustice. 
And there was a pastor came in and said, you know, some very definitive and strong things about our presence in the community and the purpose of forming us. And so I gradually became by being put in through the life of the church, being put in that context, um, was invited into a formation process, which has allowed me to think through. I have references also with the, my first work post-college and grad school with being with the Church of the Brethren in Nigeria. And I, it was a week after arrival, which was about five weeks after the first Boko Haram attacks. And I you know, walked into a classroom. I, we started reading the Sermon on the Mount together. And, I, and you people said, so what should I do if someone comes into my home to kill me? You know, this says love my inner enemy. Should I just let them kill me? And this is like a this is not a hypothetical in this case and i so i said you know we've committed to reading this together you identify as people who follow jesus and also live within a peace church tradition and i as well but this is difficult and i'm not going to stand here as someone who can leave and say this is definitely what you should do and goodbye but we need to struggle with it and work and what does it mean for us to react differently or think differently about this notion we you know, come up against this all the time in dc around issues of war our, our imaginations are formed in such a way that we cannot often think outside and imagine and do something different. And this is the this is the formation that Howard talks about: liturgy, the life of the church, being together, struggling over mundane things. You know, he often says like the you know wax is eloquent over board meetings, for example. Um, you know how this you know working through things you know in unison and figuring out how to live radically when very distinct needs are brought this this forms us to to live i mean people of course of course people challenge him and say well this you know does, does such a church exist and you know we see many examples of this not existing and so i i see his work as he's both picking up examples and narrating it theologically to enliven our imagination so we can think about what is the you know why is it not mundane that we do X, that we gather weekly uh, to worship. Um, and how do we then challenge ourselves to do that in a way that is, in fact, more peaceably, peaceably done and more truthfully worshiping? And so it's not a, you kind of arrive there and then you get, you kind of took care of you, know, check the box. We're now peaceful, check. Now we can move on to something else. It's an ongoing process where we're continually formed. So Howard Voss says uh, what we consider to be private should be considered public. Uh, what is his understanding of peacemaking in the public arena? One of my, I wouldn't really say it's a criticism, but it may be a criticism. One of my questions to him is, he, though he talks about very concrete things and says we should be more concrete, more specific, and more narrative, he doesn't give very many examples of like what does it mean, you know, in a sort of ongoing way to live peacefully. It, it tends to be fairly general, not necessarily theoretical. So in my final chapter, I I push him on this, and I don't really. It's not really a critique. It's, I mean, I recognize this the, the theological process of both peacemaking and thinking theological about peacemaking as a, as a community endeavor. And he's not a peacebuilding professional. He doesn't. You know, he's not spending his time necessarily doing this. And so part of what I try and do in the final chapter is give some examples of like, if you're thinking like how Ross, <laughs> this is how it invites us into concrete, but it doesn't give very many concrete examples of like what that, what that would look like hmm. um, in practice in something that would be widely seen as peacemaking. <laughs> so he might say like, 
worshiping together as a form of peacemaking, but doesn't necessarily say this is what it looks like for a church to be present in the middle of a possible military invasion of another country or in a context like Nigeria, where um, you know, the churches and you know, the church of other Nigeria, something like at one point, 70 percent of their members were displaced by you know terrorists. So like he's, you know, he's not in that context. And so he doesn't have necessarily the examples from that context. Um, so it's, I, I would say it's a gap, but it's also something that I was trying to to fill in, I guess, in my, in my final chapter. And he does uh, talk about ecumenism, the unity of the greater church. Um, what is significant about his thought there? Again, he kind of he, he kind of does it a bit differently than you typically, or at least many people would think about ecumenism in terms of a formal sense. And so um, he doesn't participate in, say, efforts to, to draft joint statements on the Eucharist. So he's not like in that level of ecumenism. Uh, it would be his, his, he tends to focus more on church in relation to the nation state and how that relates to you know, churches in other countries or other places that are technically divided by other nation states and how this, how we have a, a, a joint purpose and a joint identity across what are typically seen as dividing lines. And so that's, that's where I see him fitting in. I mean, again, if it's in a bit like his uh, general or his other ecclesiology of the local church. And so we, we figure out where we have common identity by working together and actually talking about it. So he says, for example, we shouldn't assume we have, we may find we have unity, but we shouldn't assume we have unity and just say, hey, we have unity and impose it on others, but we should actually get to know them and um, and in getting to know people practically and talking with them, then we actually understand, oh, look, we actually, he, this is both for ecumenical relations as well as interfaith. I think where he doesn't, where I guess I have concern on this is so, for example, in one case, the exact reference he read, he references. Um, I forget if the whole context was on interfaith peace building, interfaith relations. He says, "Well, you know, if I come across a Buddhist in it was some town where you guess traditionally in sort of white America, you wouldn't assume a Buddhist person is going to be. So, if you come across a Buddhist in you know this place, I think it's Arkansas, you 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 could walk up to them and say like, you don't need a theory of of say." interfaith harmony you can just walk up and say hey you know what are you doing here and get to know them i think where i where i i guess i'm concerned about this and i'm not sure if he's adequately reflective is um a, a white man with a phd from a prestigious university has the, the power differential of walking up to a person who is perhaps you know substantially feeling like a margin you know marginalized or minority in their community and just walking up to them saying like hey what are you doing here you know the, it doesn't it's not like we either not not be neutral or won't be perceived as neutral. It could easily, you know, and so there's, and so I, I think his broader point makes sense in that we don't need a theory of say interfaith unity or, you know, universal this or ecumenical unity. We, we just need to get around to like getting to know people and kind of working through it in a organic uh, discussion sort of way, both in practical terms. So like, how do you work together on particular concrete needs, but also while doing that, then get to know that person both as an individual as well as you know their traditions um is is how he, he talks about ecumenism uh in a, in a few contexts so you uh, and along with many others have critiqued harawas on his what he said about race or more on what the lack of what he said about race 
Um, why is this uh, noteworthy? Well, it's it's my argument roughly is, you know, he, he and some other people who then not necessarily fully defending him, but talking about his work would say, well, you know, he doesn't he there's a few cases where he's noted the history and presence of racism and racial injustice as important. And so it, it seems that somewhere, you know, he's concerned about this, but he doesn't talk about it. And so the question then is, you know, why doesn't he talk about it, you know, as a white person kind of embedded in racist or previously racist and presently racist, you know, institutions, how do you not talk about this? And my, my argument is, you know, he doesn't need to assume that he knows what he's talking about. Some people say, well, he, does, he, he knows he doesn't know what he's talking about. And so he just doesn't say anything because he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't want to assume in a sort of self-righteous way that he knows what he's talking about when he talks about race, um, which probably is an accurate read of what he's doing. My argument was he reads widely. He regularly critiques himself and the, the church, usually the American church in public, you know, in sort of informal or like not fully formed ways. Like it's, he's kind of just, you know, using, a, and so both his breadth of reading and then his public sort of unpolished uh, reflection or self-critical reflection uh, make the possibility of, you know, reading more broadly and understanding the struggles of African-Americans and people of color in this country and understanding this more. And when, when you get, when you start understanding them and experiencing, then it's, we, we are compelled to speak and not necessarily at a way of controlling or self-righteousness or I understand it all because I, you know, talk to someone about, you know, X, but it, but it, uh, but the need is to, to work at that publicly. And if you don't in this, in the U S context, if you don't, um, you don't have the, I don't think white people have the benefit of the doubt of like, well, they probably have it or they're, you know, they're probably not racist or they're probably don't have these sort of things inside of them. Um, just because they're, you know, generally good on things like peace or justice. Um, but there's a, it's an act of process and, and similar to peacemaking. It's not like, it's not a one arrives at it and then you just get to kind of sit there. So for example, how Ross says on peacemaking, he says, I'm not naturally a peaceful person. I'm, you know, I don't, know, I don't know if he says he's violent. He says, I'm not naturally a peaceful person. So I publicly say I'm committed to peace and I'm committed to nonviolence because it forces me to try to live to that. And I think similarly in terms of racism or racial justice by speaking about publicly and, you know, transparently this then helps people such as him and myself um, to, uh, to, to come to a better spot and a spot where we can work for more justice and more you know, potentially reconciliation, but at least justice. So where do you think Hauerwas comes up short on peacemaking? Which is like, this is the title of the book, right? Yeah. It's got a question mark there. Is he a peacemaker? Is that his focus or? I think, so I put a question that when I, when I, it was not the original title of, of, of the work and then I changed it to that. And the, the the editor, the publisher said, I'm not sure about that. That feels overly negative, you know, having the question mark. And I said, well, you know, I don't, my impression is many people who read Howard Ross and read, you know, titles like Justice is a Bad Idea or something like this, you know, don't see him as, like, people are not, def they might, they're not defaulting to think he's a peacemaker. They might say, well, he's committed to nonviolence or Jesus as nonviolent, but he's not necessarily a peacemaker. And in part, that's a critique of, 
the critique he raises in his you know limited works on peacemaking pe you know peacemaking is not a kind of quieting of things down it's an active engagement which often involves conflict and so i think Howross is a peacemaker that needs a broader community which is, i think what he would say as well like he doesn't do everything this is the the image of the body of christ not every everyone doesn't do everything fully in every way we have particular calling so if you're a peace building practitioner in the professional sense and you're a christian i think you should also think theologically about peacemaking and if you're a peace if you're a theologian professionally and and a christian you should be thinking about peacemaking and living peacemaking but your primary vocation is not say uh negotiating peace deals you know internationally or you know all the you, you, there are ways where you work and everyone has a finite way doing it so i yes i it i think he is a peacemaker there are limits to what he's doing and i which i think he would also agree um you know in many places he says the the good thing about being around for a long time is if you wait long enough your students will say what you know you'll say what you wanted to say and will say it better than you um and so you know he recognizes that as well so I, he's a peacemaker he doesn't have everything but no one does and there's some places where I think he comes up short. So on the final chapter, I say the title is something like where Howaros doesn't take us. And so the the part of that that's most critical or specifically critical is on the racial justice. Putting alongside Lederach's moral imagination is suggestive. So Lederach is a peace building practitioner professionally. And I say there's a lot of similarities between how Lederach frames peace building and how Howaros talks about peacemaking in the work of the church. And so that's not critique of Howaros is just saying this is suggestive for people who are you know wanting to live this practically um, and then the final the final section of that chapter is on foreign policy and religion and again I don't expect you know Howaros isn't a policy wonk so I don't you know don't need him to be but this is again suggestive of how we think about religion in the role of foreign policy which is a very active conversation in DC for example in relation to Nigeria and Boko Haram you know is this religious is it economic is it political doesn't make any sense to have these, you know, these various silos broken down. How does that affect our analysis? How does it affect, you know, where we put our money? Um, so specifically, then, how could Howarwas be more complete in terms of peacemaking, or how could people coming after him be more complete? I think he should both read and get to know, in a deeper sense, people who are working vocationally as peacemakers or peace builders. Uh, you know, I think he and others in sort of similar vein, you know, critique critique versions of Christianity who do basically the work that I'm doing. And I think it's partially based on a misunderstanding and partially a reasonable critique of, you know, work in policy and advocacy is not the only work of the church. And it's not the only political work of the church. And I agree with that. So I think, you know, getting to know people who do this sort of work day in and day out would be valuable. I think on the question of racial justice, you know, reading and and reflecting publicly on more black and brown theologians and hearing their stories, which I which he's done more later in his career. And so he's I, th I think he's heard those critiques and has done that more substantially. Um, so I think, you know, more substantial engagement so that those that as he theologizes, which is his work in relation to the world he has in his kind of repertoire of of experiences, even if they're like secondary experiences experiences of what does it mean for churches to live in a you know under under a terrorist organization what does that you know how do you do that you know i think that that would be really valuable and i think 
peace building practitioners would gain from that reflection and he would gain from those experiences. And so then in terms of foreign policy and international relations, um, your your critique would be? I wouldn't really, I don't, I don't know if I have a critique. I would say, I think there's ways to extend his work. And so that's what I attempted to do. So it's less of that I, you know, I think he's necessarily missing the mark than more I think there's space to grow and to. Okay. And so for example, he says, he, he responds to a critique of a similar critique. Someone says, you know, why don't you like tell us how to do this? You, you say wonderful things about peacemaking. Why don't you tell us what to do? And he says, this is him recounting the critique of him. So, you know, I'm not, I didn't witness it. And he says, well, I said to them, just get around to do it. You know, if you're, if you're a pastor and you want your church to be, you know, less militaristic, then, you know, get out and, pe- you know, preach peace. You know, if you're, you, know, you want these things, you know, get around to doing, just do it. And so his, his challenge is for people to, you know, participate in the work together. And so this is where I don't, I don't see, see parts of my final chapter as necessarily a critique. I just think there's ways where it can extend that align pretty closely with how he goes about things, certainly challenge him on, you know, a number of things to some extent, but, but it's not so much a critique as an extension of his work. Okay. So how would you extend it then in terms of international relations, foreign policy? Well, there's a, a number of ways and, None of them necessarily all that straightforward and none of them sort of the, the one size fits everything. So one way, say, for example, in, in the DC context, people, it's easy to, when you look at multiple, say, international violent conflicts to say, well, I've seen this here. And so when I see something that looks a little bit similar here in, you know, country, whatever, I, I won't give a specific example, but you can, you can sort of import a, a policy fix or a practical way into like, if we see, you know, violent conflict that sounds re- religious in Nigeria and we had there's violent conflict that sounds religious in the Central African Republic, well, then you can probably just, you know, sort of wholesale move the policy recommendation over kind of, you know, a sort of lateral move. And so I think where his where I would critique that tendency and where Hauras invites is um, by reading in a similar way, reading the theologically or um slowly or diversely it problematizes our assumption and allows um for us to give a more nuanced and then nuanced analysis and nuanced response so for example in the case of Boko Haram Boko Haram is a Islamic extremist group coming out of very clear failures of governance economics politics colonialism it's a very complicated background and so when they say we're doing this in the name of Islam then I've on many occasions heard people say both Muslims and not Muslims and secular people and, and analysts say, well, you know, they're saying it's about Islam, but we know it's actually because there is a very uh, serious matter of a type of corruption in relation to elite status in Northern Nigeria, which I don't disagree with, but I don't think in this case, if someone says we're doing this because of religion, that you can discount that as wholesale as it often sounded like people did. And so what mm. Hauras' work in theology, and this is where it's not necessarily Hauras' work, but it could be Hauras' work of formation reading theology, is that if you're if you read people's statements and understand and work to understand how they're understanding themselves in relation to the world, then it you can give them you can give what they say greater weight in a way that doesn't discount the economic and political factors, 
but it also doesn't say if you just like, you know, got a good development program and everything be taken care of, like it's, it's more complicated than that. So that's one way. The other, you know, there's a kind of range of ways where I kind of tease out in, you know, fair, fairly nuanced ways of where this, this type of formation in, um, in training even to engage in this work um, would allow people engaging with religion who are not religious specifically, but also religious people who have very different religious identities to greater appreciate the complexities of identity in very difficult situations. The other is, you know, many, you know, somewhat regularly I come into contact with people in the State Department, for example, who are, you know, off the side, they'll say, oh, yeah, I'm like, I'm Presbyterian or like, oh, you know, my family is Church of the Brethren. And which is, you know, interesting. And, you know, I have my business card has reverence so you know, they kind of and I work for a church so they, you know, they probably feel comfortable, you know, saying that. And again, not that I think that the State Department should, you know, have theological statements, but as as those Christians, if they're formed in congregations that robustly engage with conversations of matters of war, this then shapes and challenges how they live in those contexts in ways that doesn't necessarily stop it, but it, it, it doesn't make it, 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 it challenges national assumptions, it challenges notions of how you, one addresses uh, instability. Uh, it, it brings in questions of not just geopolitical strategy, how to counter China's influence in the Sahel, but also uh, you know, ethical considerations when we think about, um, you know, should we, for example, as a recent policy discussion we're having is, should we say no? Should the U.S. be selling a, almost a billion dollars of attack helicopters to Nigeria? Uh, and so this isn't just a sort of strategic question about whether or not we, you know, stay ahead of China in relation to Nigeria, but but it's an ethical question of, you know, what who see their government has failed and their government goes and spends a billion dollars on attack helicopters, like hmm. even apart from a. I mean, that's even that's just like a strategic kind of framing of a, you know, what does it see an ethical question? Um, and so as as Christian communities in places like D.C. or, you know, around the U.S., to keep it somewhat narrow, engage robustly with questions of war as a central theological topic, then this shifts how we assume we should act as citizens or as, you know, in many for many people in D.C. as employees of the state. Um, and uh, and that then at least has a potential. Every, every, I feel like everything I say in the final chapter is like, this could contribute in this way. It's again, not doesn't, it's not definitive, but it, but it makes the questions more serious and not simply technocratic. It's not just, it's not, for example, we work on us drone lethal drone policy and it's, it's not simply a question. We have sufficient technology to, you know, clearly identify what we define as a bad guy and then go kill that person. Like it's not just a technical question. There's there's a bigger question here of like bigger strategic question, bigger political question, bigger ethical question of like, you know, church is building more opposed to it kind of wholesale. But then, you know, for even people who are, you know, active proponents of just war theory, you know, one can easily use just war to argue that that is not that should not be done. You know, there's an that's it, still an ethical critique of uh, when done well, an ethical critique of the use of violence. That leads me to your next question. In the peacemaking community, you have absolute pacifists and you have just war people. And so, um, you know, Glenn Stassen was famous for talking about just peacemaking as a way of 
um, bringing both camps together to work for peace. So what is your understanding of that that movement and its vitality and mm -hmm. reason for being? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's a I think it's a good development. I think it also, which is part of the effort for my book, is it brings a question away from uh, getting stuck in the uh, a somewhat theoretical question of should we go ever go to war or never go to war. I mean, even a just war theorist, if doing it, you know, a Christian just war theorist um, is substantially interested in reducing the possibility of going to war. Of course, not absolutely opposed, but it's not it's, that doesn't it doesn't equate with warmonger. It's not it's not as though they're saying, you know, we should go fight every war no matter what and no matter way, you know, no matter the cause, you know, no matter the place. I mean, there's there's a you know, if you do that well, I mean, I think rhetorically, that's often, you know, Obama did this in relation to I think, if I remember correctly, is Libya, he said, well, it's, it's a just, it's, you know, it's a just war. He just, just kind of, you know, put it out there. It's like, well, that, you know, takes care of we, we say it's just so it is like, it's, it's often used rhetorically. Um, but when done well, it is, you know, it, it they both across the board, there's an interest in reducing harm, reducing violence. Um, generally, of course, there are many people who are would not necessarily fall into that camp of good faith working to reduce violence. Um, and so I think the just peace is interesting, an interesting development. And I think is, is where I function, you know, much of my work. And so we're, we're both, we have, we, we will we'll answer questions and kind of work at, you know, the sort of absolute rejection of war, but also working to develop uh, skills and strategies and thinking that then, work to develop peace and so for example in the the ecumenical call to just peace of the world council of churches the companion guide to that there's not an absolute prohibition to say there are some cases when all things have failed and you know though we lament it's the case we think that you know use of armed force is justified but they have this what, what i think what i think just peace does is pays much more attention to the the, the front end so it's not the question is not you know, when we're ready to, when something has gone down, we're ready to, we need to respond or quote unquote, we need to respond, but it pays attention to the, the longer trajectory beforehand. So invests in things that make for peace. And so, you know, often in the uh, DC context, it feels like we, 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 you can see where our interests are, where we, well, when I say we generally, I'm, I'm meaning broadly as a U.S., which includes the government, we, you can see where our interests are is where we invest and we, we, are, we are very disproportionately invested in things that are uh, either direct or related directly to ma matters of war, making war, and you know grossly under under uh, investing in things that make for peace. And so, you know, Stassen lays out, and others who do just peace work, you know, lay out a range of things. So, like, it's the question is not simply do we bomb this person or this person, <laughs> or not bomb them, but do we do we invest in political and economic systems internationally and nationally that promote the possibility of just relationships. For example, do we invest substantially enough in diplomatic relations so that we don't get to the point of escalation beyond, you know, easy return? Um, of course, these investments don't guarantee peace or certainly not in the, the sort of most full sense, you know, biblical sense peace. Um, they, they, they push us closer towards something that is more peaceful, I believe, or can. But of course, you know, rarely, I and many would say never, has investment in war got us to where it claims to either. I mean, we've just 
you know, officially have ended, uh, we're, I guess, right on a year, just a week or so after a year of withdrawal from Afghanistan after 20 years of war. And Afghanistan's in uh, an active famine. We've frozen assets. You know, it, it's a terrible situation. So you, those who say we, sh we, we can't invest in peace because it doesn't, doesn't do something well, I mean, you can't, it's not like there's like, you invest in war and it does something well either. Um, it's not. It's not like they're like. It's not. It's not a good faith argument. I don't think um, to, to say that. All right. So finally, our last question: application. What um, do you say to the church today in terms of peace and peacemaking? What can the church do? I guess what I should say as an author is that you should read my book. Um, <laughs> I think. You know, making peace a focus uh, of our work and study is critical. Um, Willard Swartley uh, wrote a covenant for peace, I think it's about 10 years ago. And in that he notes that, you know, for all the work on New Testament ethics that have been done for, you know, centuries, there's relatively limited focus on peace, even though peace shows up you know, if you do a word count, it shows up pretty regularly. You know, it's, it's pretty robustly present, but it's not directly there. So, I mean, you know, on the very basic level, it's reading isn't everything and thinking isn't everything, but it certainly helps to, to think and focus on. So for pastors, you know, thinking about what it means to preach about peace, you know, both on the interpersonal as well as on the geopolitical. My, my world, I tend to get stuck in this sort of geopolitical space. But, you know, how do I, if I'm working on, you know, what's happening in Ukraine now, how do I also think about, how I respond to someone when they cut me off when I'm biking home from my office. Like, how do we, how do we continually challenge ourselves and think together for active peacemaking? How do we invest in that? So, you know, it's easy for me to criticize the government and say, look, you just, you know, committed this many billions to, you know, the military budget. Um, but how does the budget of my church, you know, how are we investing in peace? I mean, it's one thing that Howard Ross says, he says, you know, if you want to know, you know, look at how you're preaching, look at how you're, you're spending your money, both personally as a church, you know, at the very local level, but then also, you know, look at how these things um, engage at the global level. Um, you know, it, it feels pretty counterintuitive for the, probably for many Christians, but Church of the Brethren, we at least, I guess, like to think that we're humble and don't talk about the service stuff we do. But you know, I often say to people, I, I, well, I don't generally encourage boasting. If you're investing money in, for example, during the Nigeria crisis, which is ongoing, but say the first four years, five years, we, we as a very small denomination, raised $5 million, put into Nigeria, what we call our Nigeria's crisis, Nigeria crisis response. And I could go into a government office and say, I want you to do this. And our church also is, you know, stepping up and doing the work. Like that's, you know, that, that $5 million is like huge, hmm. huge for us. It's a drop in the bucket of what you can do. And so I'm, it, it kind of sounds like I'm boasting, but I'm, what I'm trying to do is leverage that to change a policy system level. So it's not just sort of political advocacy sort of high level statements, but it's also not just community engagement. How do we, there's a, how do we meet local need and take that what we're experiencing and then shape it into pushing to change the system as well. Um, so I guess learn, continue to challenge how we, how we live personally, ask the question of how we live in our particular location and then how do we tie that into um, policy questions or larger system questions? And recognizing while we're all called to a lot of things, we can't all do everything full time, of course. And so you know, each church, each person has a, 
a calling, a vocation that, though broad, has some very specific and narrower applications if we're going to do it well. Um, and that is, I find surprisingly difficult to to be okay with that. Of it's like, well, there, there's there's quite a lot in the world, and so there's. I mean, that's where I, you know, I think I I come up very short, probably many things, but especially in the the internal piece of uh, keeping sufficient urgency to engage, but also being at peace and recognizing that I, you know, in fact, can't do everything, nor should I do everything. Maybe I should. I cannot do everything, and though this, you know requires me to trust the community as well as trust God and trust the spirit to work through me um, and be okay with my finitude. Right. There's some way of reconciling urgency and patience. Mm-hmm. And um, so we, we live in the peace that God gives and we spread that shalom to others. All right. Well, good words. Um, so much good stuff. I'm Dennis Metzler. You've been listening to The Charge. We've been taking a look at Stanley Hauerwas, his thought on peace and peacemaking, along with Dr. Nathan Hostler. So he is the author of the book, Hauerwas, The Peacemaker, Peacebuilding, Race, and Foreign Policy. Follow the link below. Check it out. Um, so, Nate, thank you so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. I've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out. Peace to everyone.